If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel and obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. 
Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to take its core themes and trace them all the way from the beginning through to the end. We also take individual... Very good. Brilliant, eh? If uh, you'd like a Bible, we're going to be going through line by line today, so it might be helpful to you. You could use your smartphone, but that might be tempting. So uh, if you'd like a physical Bible, uh, we do have them available to you if you don't uh, have one, so you can simply raise your hand. And if you're a person that just so happens you didn't come by a Bible yet in your life, and this is the first one that you've had in your hands, take it with you. Uh, it's our gift to you. We can always order more, but one of the greatest gifts that we feel we can give anybody is God's Word, uh, His directions and desires for you and for me in the story of what creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is in this beautiful, beautiful uh, relationship with Jesus and what that looks like. So take it with you. We'd be happy for you to have it. Well, last week we were talking a little bit about, you know that at the beginning of my message, if you were here, I started to talk a little bit about the realities of relationships that you enter into with people. And uh, I used specifically the example of a wedding in which a couple stands before one another, before the person marrying them, and typically an audience of some sort of family, friends, and, and other people. And they essentially uh, say, hey, till death do us part, baby. And, and they move forward in that relationship. But what what we realized is that their vows that they make at that time actually represent a whole lot of expectations that they don't talk about on the wedding day, right? Like who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to be the primary cook? Maybe. Maybe you're both going to share the cooking. But what happens when uh, you expect that the other person's going to do the primary amount of the cooking and then they don't do the primary amount of the cooking? You're left with disappointment, right? And so what we use and what I talked about in this uh, reality is that God, in his word, sets forward with his people expectations that he has on their relationship with him. It's healthy. <laughs> it's not like, hey, clearly just from a 10,000 foot view of who you are, I want you to love me and I want you to love other people. Yes, that, that's great. Maybe you've heard people talk about that before. Like, it's most important that you love God and love others. Yes, 100%. We are so on board with that. But what does that tangibly look like sometimes? You ever heard somebody say those things? Love God and love others. But you, you kind of get engaged with some of the aspects of their life, and you're like, I don't think you're really living by that. Or maybe you aren't sure about some of the little details that could be associated 
Well, that was last week. So if you want to know more about what I said last week, you can go onto our podcast and listen to it. Today is what happens when all of the expectations are on the table. And that couple or that friend or those two people say, yeah, we're going to enter into this together. Let's make a covenant. Let's make a partnership. We're not going anywhere. And this is like one of the most beautiful things about weddings is that two people, it's a beautiful thing because two people are saying like, I'm an enormously selfish person. And the other person says the same thing, but they're like, but you know what? We're going to try to get over our selfishness and we're going to try to do this thing together. And everyone in the audience is like, wow, what a commitment. Right, they're going to do this. And, and we live in a culture now where, where people are saying, you know, because of the largeness and the aspect of that commitment, because a lot of them and their perspectives aren't working out, I'm not even going to enter into that because, you know, I got to be able to believe that I can get out whenever I want to. So actually, it's not enormously romantic at all. It's I'll stick around with you until you actually do something that really bothers me and then I'll get out of it. Psychologists and sociologists actually talk about that there could come a a day when people enter into very contractual marriage where it's, hey, let's sign a contract. We think we could probably make it for the next 10 years, so let's sign on the dotted line for the next 10 years. And then at the end of 10 years, we can renew it or we can create our our grounds at this point of what what you would take at the end of the 10 years, what I'd keep at the end of the 10 years. But, you know, it would save us a lot of the, the expense that would go into a divorce. So let's just set it up so that, you know, we can renew or not renew. So romantic, right? Well, this is what in many ways it's becoming. But how incredible when people are saying, till death do us part, no matter what, I will be there with you, for you. You're going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. But we'll get through it together. That's a beautiful thing. Welcome to Exodus 23. So if you have your Bibles, go with me. Exodus 23. We're going to start in verse 20. Now there's kind of three sections in the text we're looking at today. Section one is the conquest promise. So that's kind of the outline I'm using. Number two is confirmation of the covenant and then God's glory experience. So in this first section, it's all about God promising his people what it's going to look like when they walk this relationship out with him, specifically as it relates to land dominance. Although as we're going to see the connection to our own relationship with Jesus, what that looks like. But let's start in verse 20. I'll explain some things as we go through and then make a few points at the end. This is what God says. Behold... I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, first and foremost, there's actually quite a bit of dialogue and discussion about what this angel is. Some people have said it's the glory cloud. Other people have said it's a metaphor for guidance and help. Other people said it's a human being or messenger. Some said it's an actual actual archangel like Michael that we read about in other places of the Bible. Some people even said maybe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Like maybe this is Jesus in the form of an angel here leading, guiding, and directing his people. Now, if you get caught on all the little details here, what you miss is the actual point that, that God is trying to make to his people. And here's the point. The point is this. We can't be quite sure, but what we can know is that there is a warrior angel who has promised to go before the people of Israel and will secure their destination. That will secure their destination. How many of you feel really, really confident about a scenario or a situation in which you know how it will likely end up. You know what I mean? Like, you ever gone into something and you're like, okay, the odds are ever in my favor, and I'm going to walk into this thing, and I am probably in really good standing for success. 
you feel a whole lot more confident. It's probably not how Nick Law is feeling today about the Atlanta Falcons because Aaron Rodgers is on an enormous hot streak. I'm sorry, I had to do that. But there is a level of confidence. What God is setting forth for his people here is saying, listen, there are nations that you're walking into. You've heard about. It's scary. I recognize that. But guess what? I'm going before you. My angel is going to go before you and he is going to secure a destination. So you might not know the details of how that's all going to work out, but go forth because the destination is going to be secured. Let's keep going. Then he says, Pay careful attention to obey him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Not only is this a warrior angel, but this is an angel representing God that is to be understood, to be listened to, that they're to pay careful attention. We're being introduced to commands, directives. Listen to what this person says. Obey them. Verse 22, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. We are being introduced to a couple of pretty interesting ideas here. Number one is that God is calling his people to trust him because he has the end in mind and he knows how it's going to end for them. He's promising that victory is going to come. But he doesn't just say, hey guys, victory is going to come, so do whatever you want. He says, victory is going to come but you have to obey me. That there is a side of your part of our covenant. There's a side in your partnership that you're going to do what I ask you to do. Let's keep going. Two ideas introduced. It's going to be fleshed out even more as we go along. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, these are legitimate people groups, okay? And I blot them out You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Notice what he says. My angel is going before you. He's going to make it happen. There's the trust. There's the promise. But when you get there, don't serve their idols. Bury their idols. Crush them into pieces. Why? Verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. So here's a third idea we're being introduced to. One, First idea, God is saying, trust in me based upon the victory that I'm going to give you. This is a promise of my victory. Two, obey me. But then three, you're going to be blessed. So not only do I want to give you victory, I want to bless you. I want you to delight in me. This is incredible. Verse 28, and I will send hornets before you. Hornets. Really? Which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. God will use anything to drive people out. Hornets. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land becomes desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell... 
They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So this is, this is what God is doing. And some of us are kind of lost because we're like, land? Like, I'm renting right now. What, is, what does this mean? I mean, I'm paying somebody else for their land. Some of us, that you have a house, and it's like, okay, I've got this little piece of land. Some of us have larger pieces of land, and we're not really too interested in going to accumulate the neighbor's property, right? And who knows what his last name is? Parasite. Like, you, you know, it's, it's lost on you. You're like, what do I do with this? But in a culture and in a people group where land, dominance, conquest is of enormous importance because it actually meant the key to your survival, this is huge. This is huge. God is coming along and saying, I'm going to give you victory, folks. You don't got to worry. Take your spears along. Do what you got to do. But you're going to win. Amazing. Amazing. Now, how do we apply this to, to your life and to my life? Because again, we're not probably in the business of wanting to accumulate tons of property. We're not expecting God to throw hornets on our neighbor's land so that we get it. But what do we make of it? What are the principles in which God is setting forward for us? Well, number one, here's really important, is that we're to trust God and his victory. Here's the definition of trust, okay? It's a firm belief, firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. So here's the question. Do you believe that God is reliable? Do you believe that God is truthful? Do you believe that God is able? And do you believe that he has strength? If you do, then live your life that way. Friends, Christians these days are the most insecure people group on the planet. We're so worried about stuff. And then we get worried like on our streets, in our neighborhoods, and we're like, I know, like nobody else on your street, if they're not believers, they're not like double thinking having you over for dinner. <laughs> Yet you sit there going, if I have them over, you know, what's the conversation going to be like? Are they going to ask me questionable things that I might not agree with? What if they bring, drink, drink wine? Like some of you maybe, uh, you, don't, you don't drink. So it's like, what if they bring wine? Well, take the wine from them and give them to a friend that does drink the wine. Like, we got to get over ourselves and we got to trust that God is with us. That he is strong. That he is able. That he stands for truth. Because when we don't, when we start believing that, well, no, I don't really trust him. What you're saying is, I trust in myself more than I trust in him. And think about it, return to the scenario. Imagine if the people are like, we want to trust in our own spears. We want to trust in our own horses. We're going to trust in our ability over the, the Hivites, Jebusites, all these guys. Like, that wouldn't have worked out. And as we see in the scriptures, it doesn't work out for them. Anytime the people of God start saying, let's trust in us and not God who's promised that it's going to work out for us, everything goes poorly. And the scriptures stand behind this. Hear this from Joshua this is what God says to Joshua in Joshua 1, 2 to 3. Moses, my servant, is dead. Thanks for clearing that up, God. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Just as I promised to Moses. Every place that the sole of your foot treads upon, I will give to you. I just start walking. I make a habit of walking. God promises it. 
Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. This is my favorite verse in grade 8. Um, I don't think I truly understood what it, what it meant in, in deeper ways. But I hope I can understand it greater today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't actually say that twice in a row. I just did that, okay? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your straight your paths. In all your ways, not on Sunday ways, not Tuesday ways. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's a good thing. Some of us like to wander off the beaten path. He's saying here, it's good to walk in the straight. It's good. It's good for you. Secondly, what do we pick up? That obedience matters. Okay? Obedience matters. Here's the definition of obedience. Compliance with an order, request, or law, or submission to another's authority. It's saying, my authority is not the most important one in this situation. God's authority is the most important one in this situation. So we don't like authority. Because you encroach upon who I am and my rights and what I want for myself. Are you not glad that there's authority when you're going, when someone's driving on the road at 100 miles per hour? I know it's kind of lost on us because miles per hour, you can just imagine, that's, a, that's a pretty quick. Because it means your life's at stake. Right? We need, we like that authority because it protects us. Because it helps us. What about authority that we don't immediately see that might help us? But we just need to trust that it is the best way. Like if I let Nixon watch Paw Patrol whenever he wanted to watch Paw Patrol, that is not going to be good for him. We get this. This is our Heavenly Father who knows and sees all. And he says, I don't want you to go down that path. And in the immediate, it doesn't look like it's going to be harmful to you. But believe me, it's harmful. That's not why I created you. And so what we see here in the scriptures is that obedience matters. James 2, this is James, the brother of Jesus, said this, who was eventually convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can say all day long that you trust God, but the school of hard knocks says, how do you actually live? And some of us love the idea of of grace. But you abuse grace if you say, all grace, 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 and continue to live in your sin. Because grace said, no, I see your sin, I point it out, and I'm going to die for you to take your place. It doesn't say, continue to do what you want. That's an abuse of grace. So it says here, faith without our works is dead. So some of us said, amen, to we, we trust the ability of God. Do you? In the obedience of your life, do you trust that? Do you trust that God has the ability? Do you really, really trust? Do you believe he has strength? This is important. That our obedience to God matters. And, and obedience is to be a delight and not a duty. Obedience is to be a delight and not a duty. You know, I, I enjoy watching um, military movies and things. There's a, there's a 
miniseries called Band of Brothers. It's fantastic. Huge fan. And in Band of Brothers, you're kind of like, like, why are these guys like running into battle when a guy, another guy tells them to do it? Like, did you not see that that was not going to be a great situation? But these men, you see, they respected the authority of their commander and they respected and they, they believed in what they were there to do. So they were willing to do the unthinkable. If we trust in the authority of our commander, and if we believe that the kingdom of God is advancing, and that that's why we're here and what we're called to be a part of, we'll go into unthinkable scenarios and unthinkable situations. Do we agree? Like, that's what we're called into. So let's go. But let's also recognize that obedience comes from love. John 14, verse 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, the more you love somebody, the more you're willing to do things that harm yourself or are not in your own best interests. So maybe you're struggling with trust. It's because you don't love Jesus. You don't love what he's done for you. So I'd say today, like you might be here and you're like, this whole thing sounds a little bit strange. You don't come from a Christian background. You're not currently a Christian. Friends, we here want to be a people that take seriously what we believe. We want to take seriously the fact of what Jesus has done for us and how that changes how we love other people. And I just want to apologize and confess that we have fallen short many times as God's people because our posture has not been one of love. Three, what do we learn? God will bless you. The unconventional ways God blesses our obedient hearts and sustains us, even in trial, suffering, persecution, and poverty. So some people, they run in the direction of like, God will bless you. Like, you'll have a great financial portfolio. Like, you'll never get sick. That's not what's going on here, folks. The promise that we read about in these scriptures is specific for this time and place. But the promise that we have from God that he is with us, no matter what, That's a blessing in and of itself. Because we live in a world of people that feel so alone. Yet we can know that God is with us. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. This is what Paul says. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think a great blessing in life would be to be content. Think about that. It would be enough if I was just content in life. That'd be unreal. That's the blessing that we're talking about here. Not accumulating more and more, but being content because you have Christ. And then fourthly, interesting enough, trust, obedience, and blessing are all the responses of an individual to the good news of Jesus. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are given salvation. Our obedience is then the result of that salvation. And then the blessing is believing and knowing that God has won and that there will come a day where we will receive a final inheritance that is eternity with Jesus forever. Hear these words from Charles Spurgeon. Here, on this earth, rest is partial. There, in heaven, it is perfect. Here, the Christian is always unsettled. He feels that he has not yet attained. There, all are at rest. They have attained the summit of the mountain. They have ascended to the bosom of their God. Their everything is immortal. Happy day 
when mortality shall be swallowed up of life and the eternal Sabbath shall begin. That the worry of schedule, that the worry of time, the worry of stress will all be gone. And we'll spend eternity with Jesus. That's a blessing. You know? You ever meet one of those people and they're like, man, like, I'm not scared to die. I'm ready. Take me home. That's so cool. Take me home. Like, if you do not, from a day-to-day basis or every other day basis, feel like, man, it would be great if Jesus came back now. (laughs) Then I would argue that you're not feeling the effects of this broken, sinful world that we live in. We need Jesus, but we also need to recognize that in the current situation, we are needed to get out there to bring love and peace and hope and restoration to others in bringing the good news of Jesus and in getting our hands dirty and caring for people. Let's keep going. Chapter 24. Then God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. And half of the blood he withdrew against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, very strange here, folks, get ready, and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, believe me, there is a lot of context going on here, and we don't have an enormous amount of time to go into it. The blood that he throws on the altar is signifying the blood that God enters into the covenant with his people. The blood that is then sprinkled on the people is the blood that now welcomes then into that covenant relationship. And the reason for why they do two call-outs of everything the Lord will say, we will do, is because, number one, the first affirmation was so they could understand and accept. They're giving their declared intent, that this is what we intend to do. But then their second affirmation was to promise to obey and actually confirm it. So the first is, yes, we set out to understand it. The second is, we're in. We're going to do it. So what what do we learn of this? (laughs) What what do we apply the sprinkling of blood, right? Here's the application. Jesus is the mediator who seals the new covenant with his own blood. You see, in this scenario and context, Moses is the mediator between God and his people. You see, we all take it for granted that you can just at any point go, hey God, how's it going? Yeah, I'm sitting here in Church of the City right now. It's been uh, okay so far. Hey, uh, looking forward to lunch. Hey, we'll pray back then again. Like, we, we take it for granted that we can just talk to God in that way. These people couldn't approach God in that way. They needed to go through somebody else. Is that crazy? Like they had to go through somebody else. Yet in the new covenant, what we recognize is that Jesus comes and serves as that mediator and then dies, sheds blood on our behalf so that we can now walk in relationship with a perfect and holy God. 
This is what it says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Blood is the basis for man's relationship with God, and in order for this relationship to be restored, blood must be shed. And Jesus sheds his blood for you and for me. So he mediates. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. 74 people going up the mountain. Crazy. And they saw God of Israel. There was under his feet, at, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Weird ending to that, eh? So God says, hey, 74, the leaders of the people, I want you to come up to the mountain. We're going to hang out. Like, notice what God is doing here. Notice the grace in this. Because in other places in the scriptures, it says, if, if you see God, you can't survive. So we're kind of caught in that of like, how are they hanging out with God? And again, there's a lot of different opinions on it. The point being is God is extending his grace to these elders and saying, come up. We have made a covenant. Blood has been shed. Be welcomed into this relationship that I am opening up with you, a broken people. And by the way, let's share a meal. Now, in North America, meals are primarily seen as a thing to do because we're, we're hungry. Uh, sometimes we're not hungry. We're just like, oh, it's there, sure. In other cultures, a meal is the entrance into a relationship. We are not friends. We are not compadres until we share a meal together. I have a friend, and, and he, he pastors a very intercultural church, and he, he was kept being invited uh, to, over to the home of some f- folks in his church that have an African background, a different country in Africa. And so he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll get there, you know, and, and he probably should have gone sooner is the point of the story. But he eventually goes over, and they, they welcome him in, they give him hugs, and he's there for the next, like, three to six hours just eating with them. This is a similar culture in which we're not just told they ate and drank so that, wow, well, their, their needs are met physically. Thank goodness they climbed that mountain and got to have a snack on the top. This is signifying God is entering into a partnership with the leaders of his people and they are enjoying his presence. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. See, this is again, Moses being the mediator. These other guys aren't welcome to go up. It's Moses going up to be this mediator. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Yes, the Joshua of Joshua. And Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So he's taking care of kind of the logistics. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. I love this. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Like, Moses waits six days. So if you're ever like, man, like, I'm doing my devotional time, and God's not showing up, give it six solid 24-7 days, and then let's talk, okay? Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in sight of the people of Israel. 
Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Epic time on the mountain. Almost guaranteed. What do we make of this? How do we apply this? Well, friends, we revel in God's glory and Jesus' sacrifice in the meal of communion. Do you see, see what this meal is ultimately foreshadowing? That I have made a covenant, that blood has been shed, and now I'm welcoming you up this mountain to partake in this meal with me so we enter into a partnership together. And then all those many years later, Jesus would come and Jesus' blood would be shed and on the night that he is to be betrayed, he begins to celebrate this meal with his disciples. And he says, do this in the future to remember me. You see, communion is not for the purpose of, I'm a little hungry, you know, it's almost lunchtime. I just need that little piece of bread in my stomach. And then you take it and you're like, oh man, it's caught in my teeth. Now I got to like get this out of my teeth. Let's be honest, we've all thought that before. Communion is a sign of that we have been welcomed into a relationship and a partnership with a perfect, holy God. And that we come to that table not with anything to bring him of our own that doesn't have any value to get us at that table. And some of us do that if we're honest. We, we, we take communion and we're like, man, I've been good this week. Mm, I've been good. Got up every morning, pretty early, did my devos. High five God. I'm ready for communion today. Recognize this, that there is nothing within you and any human being that gives you the right to approach that table void of what Christ has done for you. The only reason you can take communion is because of Jesus. The only reason you can understand the significance of communion is because of Jesus. Otherwise, it is a, a piece of bread that's caught in your teeth and a little juice that didn't quite get all of the bread out. But that's not what it is. Because in communion, we celebrate and we magnify and we're taking a meal in which we're celebrating what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross that blood was shed, that relationship was entered into, and we celebrate it together. This is good news. This is amazing that God wants to enter into a covenant partnership with you and with me. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take communion. Because why not, right? Like we, we look at this text, I'd encourage you to go home and look at this text more. 74 of these men going up the mountain, eating and drinking with God. But guess what? Because of Jesus, we sit here and we eat and drink with God too. It's not just these men that climb the mountain. And we don't even have a mountain to climb because Jesus climbed the mountain for us. We simply get to partake. Recognizing that we can put our trust and a God that's gone before us has secured our destination. Understanding that then we walk that out in obedience, understanding what he has accomplished for us, and then we receive the blessing of contentment that I have Jesus. So what we're going to do today is uh, the elements. Uh, we're getting up out of our seats. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be passed. Okay, sorry, the baskets threw me off. The baskets are going to come to you. You're going to take a piece. If you are and do have an allergy, 
we want you to participate in this meal too. So there is an option for you over at the welcome tent. Um, maybe go there. Or do you want them to raise their hand and you'll bring it to them? Go there. Go to the tent. And take it, and then I'm going to come back up, and we're all going to take it together. But let's remember, this is an incredible meal. This is a meal. This isn't, this isn't just this little thing. This is a meal that signifies God's relationship with you and with me. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the truth of your word, that we can enter into it, that we can understand it, and then we can apply it to our lives. I pray, God, that we would learn to love your word more and more, Lord, because we fall more and more in love with you. May it be a delight and not a duty to read it, to understand it. Thanks for the time this morning, God. Thanks for the gift of your blood shed for us. Amen.